This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hello, this is Adam Paulson welcoming you to this bite-sized bio webinar. Today's presentation is titled Errors and Misconduct in Biomedical Research and is being presented by Dr. Elizabeth Bick from Harbors Bick LLC. Elizabeth Bick, PhD, is a Dutch-American microbiologist who has worked for 15 years at Stanford University and two years in industry. Since 2019, she is a scientific integrity volunteer and consultant who scans the biomedical literature for images and other data of concern and has reported over 7,000 scientific papers. For her work in science communication and exposing research misconduct, she received the 2021 John Maddox Prize. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the top right panel of your screen, and I'll put them to Elizabeth at the end. Details of how to access the on-demand recording of this webinar will be sent to you by email shortly. So now over to you, Elizabeth, for the presentation. Good morning from San Francisco. This is uh, Elizabeth. So it's very early for me and I apologize and I just had a cold. So I hope um, you can still hear me fine. So um, today I'm going to talk about errors and misconduct in biomedical research. And so um, before I start my, my talk, I want to make sure that I have all my financial disclosures out of the way. Because sometimes I will criticize another paper for not disclosing their financial um, uh, income. And so I, I, of course, need to make sure I do this uh, myself. So I am not employed. I don't work for a university or a company. Uh, I work for myself. I have a consultant, um, small little company for myself. And with that, I receive uh, consulting fees and speakers fees to, to give talks at universities. And I sometimes also work for publishers to investigate cases of um, suspicions of misconduct. I also have a Patreon account, which is a crowdfunding site. So um, I uh, get a decent amount of income through that. So I'm very grateful for my donors who uh, support my work. I have worked for a fraudulent company called Ubiome. And um, that is uh, that the company was um, is now bankrupt, doesn't exist anymore. The founders have been indicted with um, insurance fraud and all kinds of other um, uh, nasty things. But none of the employees have been uh, accused of that. So I do have four patents from that time, but I don't think they're worth much money now that the company is uh, no longer there. And um, so the work that I do focuses on, on images, as you can see on this slide, images that can be duplicated or completely wrong in scientific papers. And why do I care about scientific papers? Because you might think that once a paper has been published, once a paper has been peer reviewed and gone through all that process of uh, criticizing it and it's being published, why do we care about it? Is it set in stone once it's peer reviewed? And the answer is it's not set in stone, but um, we can still find errors and, and, and suspicions of misconduct in it. But for me, publications are, are important because they're, 
They're the foundations of science. They're how we scientists communicate with each other. But I also have a very strong personal belief that science is about finding the truth. And um, when we're scientists, we, we're trying to discover what the truth is. And we share that with others through publications. And then we hope that other people share uh, share their publications with us because this is the way we do science. We do not do science just by ourselves. We work in teams, but most importantly, we build our work on the work of others. We don't, yeah, we, we're not a uh, unique uh, entity in the world of science. We always build our work on people, on people's work that has been done before us. And so I see science and science publications as bricks in the walls of science to which we, onto which we layer new layers of bricks every time we publish a new study. So uh, we tend as scientists also to believe and to trust each other, uh, but unfortunately science is not immune to fraud. So if one of those publications, one of those bricks is not good, that means that part of that wall, all the other publications that rely on that first publication are perhaps not on stable ground. And so part of the wall could be tumbling down. And so I care about scientific publications because I feel if I would discover an error or if I would suspect misconduct in a paper, I need to say that because other people might waste a lot of time trying to replicate those results and they might not know that there's a problem in the paper. And so if you think about specifically science misconduct, there are three types of science misconduct. There can be many things, many, uh, yeah, many parts of a paper can be wrong, uh, but not all of that is misconduct. A lot of things that we see in science that is not correct could just be errors. There are many questionable research practices uh, shown here on the left, but real science misconduct, at least in, in most countries, is defined as one of three things, plagiarism, falsification and fabrication, in which plagiarism is copying somebody else's texts or ideas without giving credit. Falsification is where a person changes some of the results to perhaps better fit a hypothesis. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, well, fabrication is where a person completely makes up results, so it doesn't even do an experiment. So those would all qualify under science misconduct. But um, I also want to point out that behind every case of misconduct, there is a potentially a sad story. Because why would a person do misconduct? Yeah, we all feel the pressure to publish. But why would a scientist really go that far to deviate from finding the truth and actually reporting or changing results? <coughs> I'm sorry. So I want to point out that on, on most papers, there's multiple authors. So this is a paper, this is actually my first paper that I got retracted because I found a big um, uh, suspicion of misconduct in it. There are multiple authors on this paper. And we do not really know who is responsible for findings of, um, of errors or misconduct in a paper. It could be the first author, or it could be the last, or it could be all of them. <coughs> no, let me drink some tea, see if I can fix this problem. It's hard to know who is responsible. And 
you could argue that the first the first author perhaps who made an, a figure is responsible for uh, perhaps photoshopping an image but in the end the last author the senior author is responsible for the whole uh, integrity of of the whole work but very often we'll see that the last author would um, blame the first author for doing the misconduct in the end, all the authors on a paper will be damaged if a paper is retracted for suspicion of misconduct. And not just perhaps the author, but all other people working in that lab or are all other people working in that institution. But um, you can think of se several scenarios where people would do misconduct. And the scenario I usually give is that of a foreign student uh, working in a lab in the U.S. So they came to the U.S. in the hopes of working at a big name university, but they're on a visa. If you're on a visa, that means that if you are fired, that you have to leave the U.S. and go back to your home country within a couple of weeks. It's a very short period. So if you are uh, perhaps working for a very demanding, perhaps a bullying professor who perhaps tells you, oh, if you don't give me those results that I had hoped for, I will find another postdoc who can do the work. I think you could interpret that, rightfully so, as a threat to be fired. And I think in situations like that, and it's just an example to give you hopefully a little bit more sympathy for why people do it, um, it's that you want to please the professor. You want to get out of that lab with a publication. And so you're very afraid to get fired and you might just want to please the professor and give them the results that they want. And in the end, the senior author, the, the, the professor, is responsible for the, the atmosphere in the lab. They should create this atmosphere of supervision, of mentoring, and of um, work making sure that the results are, are good and solid. And, um, and so I do want to point out again, I'm not going to point fingers. I will, we can have fun with the papers, but I do not want to point out who did it. So I'm not going to show any author names on the, the next couple of slides. But um, I also want to uh, point out that we can separate the problems in a paper to the question of who has done it, that those are two separate questions. And we can look at a paper and potentially see a problem with it. But who has done it, who was ultimately responsible for it, that is a, a very difficult question to answer. And that has to be done by the institutions. And it needs a lot more material than just staring at a paper because the answer is not going to be there. And so the, the parts of a paper that I would look at look like this. I look at figures in scientific papers, specifically biomedical papers, because that's my background. <coughs> and I would find photos that could be either line graphs, as you can see here on the left, or photos, as you can see on the right. Now, I mainly focus on photos because in photos, there's a lot of details and we can, we can examine these photos of tissues, of mice, of gels or blots of, of cells. And we could perhaps spot potential duplications in these or potential Photoshopping. In line graphs, that would be much harder to, to look at. And um, yeah, who knows if the line graphs on the left are real or not. I know I made two of them, so I know two of them are real. But it's, it's much easier to catch misconducting photos than it is in line graphs. Here are three examples of 
inappropriate image duplications in photos that I have found in the past. And so there's three different categories. <coughs> Starting on the left, we have a simple duplication. You see two sets of photos that appear to look identical. You see a lot of panels here that are all slightly different, but two sets are identical. It's the exact same photo that was used twice to represent different experiments. And this could be an honest error. You can imagine a person having done a lot of experiments and taking lots of photos and, and not really keeping good track of their photos. So it's sloppy, but it could be an honest error. It, it's not necessarily misconduct. In the middle, there's an example where you see four different photos of cells being treated with different amounts of radiation. Two of these photos here on the top overlap, and I've marked that area with a green box, and the two photos on the right also overlap, which I've marked with a blue box. So three of the photos were taken from the same specimen. The sample was moved under the microscope a little bit, and a new photo was taken, but in yeah, it is the same sample. So instead of looking at four different experiments, at best, we're only looking at two. Um, this could also involve this type of repositioning, could also be um, mirroring or, or shifting or um, stretching or flipping or rotation, things like that. So that would be a repositioned image duplication. And on the right, you see an example of an image duplication in which parts of the photo themselves appear to have been duplicated. So you see four Western lots, A through D, and in Western lot A, you can see that lane one and three appear to look the same. There's lots of little dots that you can look at, and it appears that this photo has been photoshopped. Um, and, and here in the bottom panel, you also see three lanes that look remarkably similar. Now, this type three duplication, uh, in which parts of the photo itself have been changed, is very likely to have been done deliberately with the intention to mislead the reader. So the repositioned one, type two, is, a, is sort of falls in the middle. It could be done intentionally. It could be done by an honest error. It's not always um, easy to know, um, but these categories sort of help a person to try to determine if it was done intentionally or not. And here are a couple of other papers or YouTube videos that you can watch that also address these duplications and um, image alterations that are uh, not appropriate. Now, I have put a couple of slides in this presentation where you can test your own ability to spot these duplications. So here you can see seven panels. And as you can see from the labels, these are all supposed to be different photos, different experiments. So they're cells, uh, and, and the photo was taken under a microscope, but two of these panels are identical. <coughs> Can you spot the, the two that are identical? Well, I'll take another sip of my tea. Um, and this is a very easy one. I hope most people have found the answer. There's two panels. Um, the first and the third panel are identical, and they should not be and uh, so this is a type one duplication. I do want to point out again, this is very likely to have been done uh, by uh, an honest error. And, and some people online uh, actually had uh, the correct answer, A and C. And so I reported this to the journal in 2015, but the journal never took any action, unfortunately. 
And yeah, this is not, you know, uh, a, a huge error. This is not really breaking the conclusions of the paper by any means. But um, yeah, it's it's a little thing that could have been corrected. But the authors or the journal or both of them um, decided to not take any action. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Here's another example of a type 2 duplication. So here is a, a bunch of panels, uh, again, of cells grown uh, and, and uh, the photo was taken under a microscope. And as you can see, <coughs> there's, there's two different cell lines and there's, there's a bunch of different treatments. So none of these photos should be the same. But there's actually several photos that overlap. So this is a type 2 duplication. The sample was moved under a microscope. And there's a couple of overlaps here. So I'll leave this up for a couple of seconds and see if you could spot one or two overlaps. And there's lots of them actually. So uh, I'll, I'll show the answer. So there's lots of overlapping images here. And yeah, if it was just one set of overlaps, I would say, yeah, that's, a, that's an honest error. You know, sloppy, but not not really any intention to mislead. But I think when you have this many photos that overlap, you have to sort of question why the authors did that. I mean, if 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 you had a student that would produce so many overlaps, you would not think that they should be doing a career in science because you have to know at the end of the day which sample is what and which photo belonged to which experiment. And the the journal agreed with me, so I reported this uh, in 2015, and it got retracted. But it was several years later, in 2019, that it got retracted. Um, you can wonder why it took so long. Sometimes these type three, type two duplications are a little bit harder to spot. So this is one that I found with, um, I believe I found this with the help of software. Uh, because this one, you can sort of see that some of these samples look very similar. But to really spot an overlap is actually quite hard. And in this case, the overlap is between J and K, and it involves a 90-degree rotation. And so when it involves a rotation, these things are even harder to spot. So for that, you might need software, especially if the two panels are in different figure figures or even in different papers. Um, but most of the examples I will be showing today I found by eye. Here's an example of a type 3 duplication. So here's a photo of a southern blot in which you can see several bands, several lanes, several smears. And the longer you look, the more um, repetitive areas you might find. So there's lots of duplicated areas in this, uh, in this uh, paper. And this is uh, quite concerning. This is a type 3 duplication, very likely to have been done with the intention to mislead. Uh, I reported this um, almost a year ago <coughs> to the journal, but it hasn't been addressed at all. Sometimes these type 3 duplications can get quite uh, elaborate, and it is actually sort of fun to try to mark them all. And, and sometimes I find part of this by software, and you look at them by eye and you start to find more and more and more. And um, yeah, so in this case, you can see that, that samples have extensive areas where we're duplicated, um, duplicated uh, regions. And 
it's not clear why. Maybe if, if one of them is in a corner, it could be to hide, for example, a skill bar. But if there's multiple areas of, of, of especially here and here, when you see these multiple areas of overlap, I'm not sure what they were trying to hide, but it's not the result as they were initially found in the lab. And here's an example of uh, Western blot art where many parts of these images appear to have been duplicated. Uh, again, not quite sure, but you can see in some cases there is a band of interest at a particular height and then there's some duplicated area. So maybe they were trying to hide some bands that they did not want to show, or maybe it was just um, a little uh, spot or stain, <coughs> but it's, um, yeah, it's not good, and I reported this online. This is from uh, a lab in in, um, in LA, actually. I have found sometimes these parts, um, these duplicated parts in graphs. So, so here's an example of NMR spectrum, where parts of the, the noise has been repeated, perhaps to hide some of the peaks that uh, perhaps showed that the compound wasn't as pure as the authors had wanted it to be. And perhaps they were trying to hide some of the peaks by slapping over an area of um, of of the noise from. But yeah, there's lots of repetitive repetitive elements here, and this paper got retracted uh, pretty quick within a year. Then there can be all kinds of other problems that are not in figure. So once you start doing this, you your eye might fall on on other parts of a paper too. And so here's a paper in which you see a table. You see lots of different measurements, and you might not at first glance spot anything um, suspicious. There's no duplications here. Uh, you see all kinds of measurements, and the measurements are given as the mean value, uh, an average of, of several mice or rats in this case. Uh, and, uh, so a mean plus or minus a standard deviation. <coughs> but if you look carefully, you might spot that the standard deviation always seems to be the same percentage as the mean. And, and so I was looking at it, well, that always seems to be, uh, you know, there's, there's almost no variation. If you take the mean and then you take the standard deviation and you would plot it and, and as the percentage, how would that look like? And so I plotted it and it turned out that all the standard deviations were 6.3% of the mean. And so it seems that they just applied a formula. Maybe they did one measurement and then they, they had that value and then they just multiplied that by 6% and then they used that as the standard deviation. But you would expect the standard deviation to be a much wider range to vary maybe up to 20% or so because biology in biology, you usually don't have very small uh, standard deviations. But this, this was very suspicious and... It appears that this was fabricated, but unfortunately, the journal never took any action. Um, so I have done a lot of uh, scanning of uh, papers to, to answer the question, how often would you find these image duplications? So not looking at tables like the last examples, but focusing on images uh, and focusing on photos in particular. So I scanned 20,000 papers um, spanning a period of 20 years by eye. This was done before I had access to um, all kinds of software to, to help me with that. And I made to, sure to include several 
different journals from several different publishers. And my two co-authors, Arturo Casadeval and Frederick Feng, both had to agree with my findings. So if one of them or both of them said, well, we don't think this is an inappropriate image duplication, then uh, I could not count it. These were all duplications within the papers. And uh, most of these papers were in the molecular biology field. So um, they should contain at least one photo of a Western blot or a gel or something like that. <coughs> in that set of photos, I found 800 papers that contained these duplicated figures. So um, that is 4% of the set. And we estimated that about half of these, so 2% of the set, had duplications that might have been done intentionally with intention to mislead the reader. So the question then was, well, does that mean that 2% of all papers contains misconduct? Is that 2%, can you apply that over all papers? These were, again, papers with photos of blots or uh, microscopy photos, uh, mainly in the molecular biology field. But can you extend that to saying that 2% of all papers contains misconduct? And of course, that's a hard to answer question. <coughs> Excuse me. Because there's many ways of misconduct that you cannot spot by looking at a photo. Um, we could spot a duplication, for example, an overlap between two images. But imagine that if you move your sample a little bit farther under the microscope, there would not be an overlap for me to find. And so, uh, yeah, in that way, I would not be able to, to catch a problem in that paper. Or if you uh, just had some believable values in a table or in a line graph, I would also not be able to look at that and, and uh, have any suspicions of fraud. And so the real percentage of misconduct has to be much higher than 2%. Yes, there could be honest errors in papers, but the real percentage of misconduct has to be higher than 2%. Uh, maybe it's 5% or 10%. And again, we don't really know. And maybe it does vary per, per field. Again, we can capture these things when it, catch these things when it's in photos, but a lot of scientific papers do not contain any photos. They might just contain one line graph or a table or an ordination plot or so. But you would never know if there was fraud unless you were sitting next to that person in the lab and carefully recording what they were measuring versus what they had published. And that is, of course, impossible. We cannot all be watching other people, uh, what they do. We sort of still rely on each other and have to trust other people. But it is, yeah, I think it's a scary thought to think that uh, five or perhaps even 10% of papers could contain misconduct. That's a very scary thought. They're, they're, the absolute numbers have to be staggering. But what is also frustrating is the, the lack or at least the, the slow speed at which scientific papers and journals uh, respond. So I reported all of these papers to the journals um, and this initial set of uh, 800 papers that I found I reported to the journals around 2015. But after waiting five years, so around um, 2020, uh, two-thirds of these papers had not been corrected or retracted. That's this big blue chunk here in the, in the pie. Two-thirds, there was no action taken. One-third had been either corrected 
uh, uh, here in yellow. Sorry, my phone falls. My microphone falls out. Had been either corrected here, shown here in yellow, or retracted, shown here in red. And there's a tiny sliver of expression of concern, which is barely visible. So that is sad. Why is only one third corrected or retracted after two years, after five years? Um, and there could be many reasons. Maybe journals were overwhelmed. I sent them an email saying, here are 100 papers from your journal with problems. Or um, they had no idea what to do. Or they just didn't believe that I was seeing these things. Um, maybe the authors didn't respond. So it could be all kinds of reasons. But it is a sad state of affairs that we tend to think that science is correcting. But it, yeah, it doesn't seem to be the way. Because if I report all these problems, there was no action taken in the majority of the cases. By now, of course, I've found many more papers. So I found... Um, around 7,000 papers and uh, reported around uh, 2,800 to the journals and institutions. And uh, most of these cases are reported online on a website called papier.com because I want to alert readers that there's a potential problem. And if you do it the official professional way by alerting to journals and hoping for a response, as I have found out, the response is... Um, yeah, is almost not there. And so for me, the best way to warn other people that there might be a potential problem is to report these things online. And so I use a website called papier.com, um, which calls themselves the Online Journal Club. And you can install a plugin that will work with your browser. And if you do a literature search and you have your plugin uh, installed, you will see these green banners in your literature search, uh, when it picks up a DOI, a unique identifier of a paper that has been uh, reported on on Papier. And so you can use this website to comment on a paper. <coughs> and you can um, also use it to just see if a particular paper or a particular author has been commented on. And those uh, search results might be quite interesting. I'm using, as I uh, already mentioned in a couple of slides earlier, I am using, I'm starting to use software. So most of the, eight, all the 800 papers that I found in my initial search in 2015, which are reported in 2016, those I had all found by eye. Um, and some people have the talent to spot these things and, and some people don't, but I guess I have that talent. But using computer software, of course, is going to be much better. At least that's what you would assume. But the problem of finding these duplications by software was actually a pretty hard uh, task to, uh, to uh, succeed in. And I've worked with DARPA to, uh, to try to crack the code. And there were several groups working on com in computer science who could not uh, possibly write software in a week, the, the small week that, that the, the challenge has to... to uh, uh, yeah, to fulfill the task. But uh, in the years after that, uh, several groups tried to work on software finding it. And some of these people have succeeded. <coughs> so I'm currently using a software tool called Image Twin. It is partially based on uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, and another uh, pretty similar tool that also is based on AI is Proofic. 
Um, so I'm using these two. I'm occasionally using FigCheck and Forensicoly, which both are free. Um, each of these software tools has their own strengths and weaknesses. And, but it is a, a big step forward, especially because Image Twin also has a database of scanned figures from open access journals. And so you can scan a figure or even a paper against that database. And sometimes it will find very surprising cases of reuse of images uh, across papers. But unfortunately, AI is not always the answer. AI can also create fake text, as we have seen. And so there's, of course, a lot of talk about it because it's a new development that science and also academia is not quite ready for. It now becomes very easy to write uh, an essay, not yourself, but have a, a, some chat box deliver your essay uh, written uh, for you in seconds. And so how do we deal with that? <coughs> As scientists, should we... Should we embrace this? Should we accept this? Should we uh, refuse it? And I think the technology is so new and the ethical questions surrounding it are, are so big that we, we haven't quite figured out yet how to deal with this. And in a way, you could say it's maybe similar to, uh, you know, having calculators in the classroom. Is that allowed or not? But this is a little bit more scary because AI cannot just create a correct answer, it can also create fake answers that look very reliable and uh, it will say it with, uh, you know, uh, confidence. But uh, as, a, as an example for the weird things that it could uh, generate is if you read this article, there's a funny little story in which a chatbox uh, bio GPT was asked to, uh, to tell how many ghosts there were in U.S. hospitals. And it said, oh, the average U.S. hospital has 1.4 ghosts. And, and the ghosts are very annoying because they, the, the patients in these hospitals cannot really heal because the ghosts go through the wards and they, they disturb the healing of the patients. And you're like, wh wh where did this come from? That's not, you know, ghosts don't exist, at least in my opinion. And, and, and they should not exist in hospitals. And where did that uh, statement come from? So... It also has been found that some of these AI bots can generate fake references. And, um, and so it can be helpful, but how, how do we deal with this? And we're not quite ready for this yet. And th these will be long discussions between uh, a lot of people in scientific publishing trying to figure out how can we detect fake AI written text? Um, can we allow people who are, for example, for whom English is not their first language, it can be very helpful to write a text and and then have the uh, the chat GPT or so um, improve the text to make the English better. And yeah, it's just it's just a yeah a difficult topic. But I do want to point it out because not only can AI generate fake text, it can also generate fake images. You might be familiar with some of the images here on the left. These images, these photos look quite realistic, but they are, they are of people we know, but they're showing events that never happened. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe Trump gets arrested here in these photos and, and the Pope might be wearing a designer jacket. But you can also see that these photos can be fun to look at. We can laugh at them. But they can also, of course, be used to create fake 
stories, stories that did not happen. <coughs> and given how, how good most people are, I'm actually very bad, but most people are good in facial recognition. We can recognize the people in these photos. We can still spot some errors in these photos, but you know, next year the technology will be so good that we can no longer distinguish a fake AI generated image from a real photo. And it's probably much easier to generate a photo of a cell or a Western blot or a gel or so, because uh, yeah, we, we're not really wired to recognize um, f uh, a gel as, as real or not. We, we can see a face and we can see the nose is at the wrong place or a hand has uh, five fingers or six fingers or, or yeah, we can recognize which hand looks believable, but these photos could already look believable. And this is a photo generated about a year ago. I think by now the technology is so good that we can no longer distinguish a fake scientific photo from a real scientific photos. And, and how do we deal with that? Uh, I don't have the answer, but I think it's uh, something we need to think about. And then finally, there are in the hands of the wrong people. This technology can can be used to to do very bad things. So the problem of paper mills is one that you might have heard about. So paper mills are similar to essay mills. They're networks of people who generate fake scientific papers, um, and and they do it for profit. They sell the papers to authors who need papers. We all need papers. Uh, if we, we all need to publish papers in the, the race that is called science, uh, we need papers for our careers. But in some countries or in some uh, environments or universities, the rules are a little bit stricter than in other places. For example, if you... Um, are a medical doctor in certain countries, you have to publish a scientific paper, even though medical doctors in general are not always interested in science and they're also not given time to do scientific research, but they still have to publish a scientific paper. So it's an impossible requirement. And in those situations, those countries, people might actually see advertisements for scientific paper, for, for authorships on scientific papers. And so they might decide you cannot really blame them. You know, if I invest a couple of thousand dollars, I will have a scientific paper and I can move on with my career and I can, can become a doctor in a hospital. This is what I wanted. And so these advertisements are pretty easy to find on, uh, on Facebook or so. And they sell authorships either on accepted papers or on fake papers. And there's different people selling different things. They're, they're scams because the papers are fake. And there's many people like me who work on this problem. <coughs> and the problems haven't, the problems of paper mill, uh, paper mills that have generated, we believe, tens of thousands of papers that are fake, maybe even hundreds of thousands of papers that are completely fake. It has not been recognized by the scientific publishers. It was recognized by several individuals, and some of these names are mentioned here. In particular, I want to mention Smut Clyde, who has done a ton of work finding fake one fake paper after another. But many people are involved in, in uh, finding these papers, and most of these are not even working in scientific publishing, or at least it's not their responsibility. It was recognized by the work of many volunteers who independently of each other have worked on this problem.
And now scientific publishers are realizing that they had perhaps not paid attention a lot and they um, they are finding these papers and they're retracting them en masse. So um, just as an example, here's what we call the tadpole paper mill. Um, these Here are two photos, two figures from two different papers, two different sets of authors who are not related to each other, different institutions. But the background of these Western blots is, is first of all, it's this, exactly the same between the different um, blots on in this um, figure, but also uh, highly similar across different papers. And so there's the particular line here that you can see. So the backgrounds were all the same. And we believe these images are generated with some primitive form of AI in which randomly generated bands are put on the same backgrounds. And of course, then we could catch them, but now they are, the crooks have, uh, have uh, upped their game a little bit. And so now they have actually random backgrounds, so we can no longer really catch them. But um, this was one of the examples in which we found a set of 600 papers that all used the same blot background. Here's an example of a paper mill, uh, probably a very different set of um, of organizers or uh, fraudsters behind uh, the scenes. Um, so they had, uh, I call this the Iranian Iranian plants paper mill. So it's a bunch of papers that all report on plants found in different regions of Iran. And so they sampled plants and did some genetic work on them. Um, if you look carefully at the the position where these plants were sampled, the latitude and the longitude. If you're a little bit, if you know your latitudes and longitudes, you might spot that, um, you know, these are, um, what is it? Uh, minutes and uh, hours, minutes and seconds that the second cannot be 93. That should, you know, 59 is the highest second that you can have, but you can see that several of these values have uh, impossible locations. This, this is not a, a real location. But not only that, if you uh, then search for these impossible latitudes and longitudes, I found several other papers that had the exact same things. And, and so here's a bunch of them where these are all different, different authors, different groups of people, although they had some authors in common. They were all reporting on different plants, uh, so it's hard to read, but, but they all had these same locations marked in red. And if it's just all copied, pasted from each other, and, and it's just weird. So it seems to be that this is a group of authors who were selling fake papers. Uh, they were replacing one plant name with another. They they were changing a couple of graphs, um, but a lot of the graphs also were, were very uh, similar. So it's a bunch of, I think, about 30 papers that, that had all these impossible coordinates and uh, duplicated values. And so this is clearly generated all by the same studio, and sold to authors who need them. Um, here's another example of a paper mill that works with synonymizing text. So what it does, it will take the, a text, or a paper that has been published, and it will synonymize, so it will find a synonym for every word or expression in the text. And it becomes a little bit funny, these texts. So uh, um, there, there's a preprint, analyzing these uh, these types of this type of writing style which is called tortured phrases I'm not a big fan of that name but um, it creates these weird um, sentences that you read and you're like what does it mean and uh, so this is a, a paper that got uh, I think it's retracted and 
you can read chest peril tends to one of the diseases that makes a huge amount of passings dependable. And so it's English, but what does it mean? It doesn't seem to mean anything. And and it's a basic part of ladies' ruins worldwide. And then you, you realize, wait, chest peril is breast cancer. And basic parts of, of ladies' ruins worldwide means it's one of the main reasons for women's death globally. And if you sort of back translate it, reverse translate it, you might actually find an original text. And so we believe these papers take uh, real papers, they plagiarize it, but they try to hide it. And it becomes a funny, tortured phrases. And and so uh, bosom malignancy or chest peril is, is, just means breast cancer. And then another funny example, there was a paper about bird identification, but the word bird was not used. It was always winged animal. And so it becomes funny. <coughs> but in reality, this is plagiarized text, but it's hard to catch using traditional plagiarized uh, detector uh, tools. So uh, finally, this is my last slide. So I've talked a lot about uh, well, my belief that science is about finding the truth. And I've shown you lots of examples of errors and potential misconduct in, in science papers. And, and you can think about how can we how can we tackle the problem of science misconduct? We I think we put too much pressure on people nowadays to to publish papers, to hold them accountable for the number of papers, the number of citations, the impact factors. And those are all decent measures to measure a person's productivity, but it's maybe we should focus a little bit less on, on quantification and more on either quality or reproducibility. And uh, we need to slow down science a little bit. We need to perhaps focus on, uh, you know, if you publish a paper, can we reproduce it? But it takes the role of a lot of people who are involved, not just the authors and the reviewers, uh, the journals, the institutions, the funders, um, there's there's lots of people who play a role. And we need people to take a harder stance against misconduct and also to have better quality control up front. Peer review clearly is not, not designed to catch fraud. And there's as papers get more complex, uh, the discussions on, on whether a paper is good or, or not, or you know what, what parts of a paper should be improved, becomes also more complex. Uh, we need a faster correction and, and just in general, a harder stance against misconduct. Uh, because it seems that if the rewards are high, you know, you, you publish a paper and you have beautiful results, it's just easier to publish. And the chance of getting caught is, is pretty low. and uh, Nobody seems to really care about it. Then you get the situation where people will just cheat. And, you know, it would be like uh, having... Uh, no rules in traffic. If we could all speed and, and run red lights and just would not have a chance of getting a ticket, I think we would. there would be much more speeding and running red lights uh, in traffic. We need to have some consequences for people who break the rules. And then finally, there's a tremendous cost of science misconduct. There's uh, not just people trying to reproduce papers that are falsified or that contain fatal errors, but also for science as a whole. We have seen in the past couple of years that there has been a lot of um, a lot of people have lost their faith in science. A lot of people no longer believe that uh, climate change is real or that vaccines work. And 
this story, the story about science misconduct could be seen in that light. You could walk away from my talk thinking that all science is flawed and that we should just not try, trust science at all, period. And I hope that is not the message of my talk. I hope that the message is that, yes, there are errors and misconduct in science, but most science is, is good. Like I still put all my money on science. We need science to solve a lot of the problems we are facing in the world, like climate change and pollution and uh, pandemics. But we we need that science to be good. We need that science to be a little bit more reliable and trustworthy. And I hope that I play my part in, in doing just that. And with that, you can follow me on Twitter as long as it's still there or X as it's called now, Microbiome Digest. And I play the game Image Forensics. It's not really a game, but it's meant to teach people um, to spot these duplications. And the winner can will win an emoji award. So with that, thank you. And I will hand it back over um, to the panel. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. That was an excellent presentation and, and really a fascinating, a fascinating insight into your important work. Uh, so we, we do have some questions coming in from the audience. If anyone else has a question, uh, please feel free to post it into the question box at the top right of your screen. Um, so Elizabeth, uh, first of all, how do you decide which papers you're going to investigate? I mean, do, do you focus on high impact journals only or do, do you spread across the, you know, how, how do you go about making that decision? You've done so many. Um, so in the beginning, when I, I did that initial search of 20,000, I, I did a more systematic. So I just said, OK, let's look at plus one. Let's, let's take a journal and just open uh, all papers that have the term Western blot in them and just scan them. And um, But for every paper that I found that had a problem, you could also say, well, if that lab produced a paper with a problem, it might be worth looking at, at more papers from that group. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still following up on leads from, from that period because I have 800 papers and 800 leads. So that's already a lot. Yeah. But I also get a daily stream of requests, either through Twitter, email, uh, LinkedIn, whatever, uh, where people ask me, can you look at a paper? Um, I think there's something wrong with it. I spotted a duplication or I think this lab is very um, unreliable and you should check out their paper. So I get a daily stream and I uh, some days it's just too much. Like I cannot possibly follow all up on, on all of these uh, papers. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. So uh, uh, a question from uh, Ezra who is also from the Netherlands. Uh, uh, Ezra says, do you think institutions should have an internal misconduct detection system as a way to ensure scientific integrity and use this before PRs submit their manuscripts to journals? And is this feasible? Um, it's it's very tough because there are many ways to, to do misconduct that would not be detectable by any method. And you could even think of it yourself, not to put any ideas in people's head, of course. Uh, I do think some quality control would be good. <coughs> but as a person who has submitted papers yourself, if you had that extra hurdle, it would be devastated because you're you're finally ready. You're okay. You want to hit submit. And if you then have to send it through some internal committee mm. for review, which will take months or weeks, or, I don't know, That's that will slow down science also. Um, I do think there should be, Obviously, we should train people to do good science, 
but we should also have a lot of focus on how to handle suspicions of misconduct. I feel there's a lot of warning that could go go out of that. If you if you know that people are being caught doing misconduct, I think that there's a uh, a lot of other people will think twice before they do it. Um, and I think that's where institutions fall short. They don't seem to investigate these cases very well. Um, they try to handle it indoors and, and behind closed doors and don't uh, announce the, the results publicly. So um, I feel that's where institutions could do much better. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, next question. Um, how can we cite an image reported in other published papers Okay, so I mean, I guess this comes on to how, you know, the, the, the advice you gave on how to report this type of misconduct. Do you just want to follow up on that? Um, yeah, I think the question is, I, and I, I might be wrong, how can you reuse an image? Oh, is yeah. it okay how to can... reuse an image? Uh, or site? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm not quite sure, but maybe the the. Yeah, person... I think my understanding was, can they? How do they report an image? Oh, but maybe not. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah. there's. Uh, so, if it's to report a problematic paper that you have spotted in another paper, if that's mm. the question, uh, I would say put it on papier. Um, you can do that anonymously. Um, you have to be sticking to the facts. You cannot. Uh, you cannot say things like, oh, I know the author and I know that they cheated. That's not verifiable. So you can only say this image looks remarkably similar to that image or this image appears to have duplicated elements with some illustration. Um, that's quite okay. You can do it completely anonymously. There's no IP tracking. So it's very safe to, to publish your concerns without any repercussions for your own uh, career. Um, so that's that's the way uh, I would recommend. But you can also report it, of course, to the journal. So you can uh, so alerting it on papier has mm. the advantage that everybody now knows it or could know about it. And then you can also alert the journal, which will take then hopefully appropriate action. They will then contact the authors, etc. Okay, so I mean, uh, another obvious question is why are these problems not caught during the peer review process? You know, because uh, you, you, you know normally there's two or three reviewers. Why, why, why are these not caught then? Because a lot of so peer review is not set up to detect fraud. As a peer reviewer, you're asked to look at a paper. Uh, it's a volunteer job. We. You know, as scientists, we tend to do it on, I don't know, I usually did it on, on a Saturday morning or a Friday night. Like it's it's sort of an extra job you do on top of your regular job. You're not paid for it. So that's already a setting where you're not, you cannot perhaps expect um, a very deep review of all the problems in a paper. But also if you don't, if you look at a paper from the point of view that you trust the results and you are just asked to say, could this you know, could the science, is the science correct? Is the interpretation of the results correct? You look at it from a different way than if what I do is like, could this paper contain an error or fraud? I think that's just a different set of glasses you put on and you look at it from a different angle. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I feel the, the real process of fraud detection should be with the publishers because they're the ones making lots of money and they, uh, yeah, they should have some better quality control and it should be done by paid people who look at a paper from a very specific angle. You know, not only could it be fraud, could there be images with problems, but also could there be statistical problems, could there be ethical concerns? So there's different 
viewpoints you can take, and that should be done by by staff uh, who works at journals. Mm. Well, actually, uh, thank you for that. So in relation to that, um, Karina asks, um, are any of the big publishers actually working with you, consulting with you and implementing checks and changes to the editorial review process, um, you know, based on, 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 you know, on consultation with you? Yes. Yeah, so uh, a little bit more so than a couple of years ago. Uh, in the beginning, I was considered, I guess, and I couldn't see that, you know, a person who created a lot of work for them, a person who perhaps wasn't responded to. But I think um, over the years, I've gained more respect and um, uh, I have done consulting for journals. It doesn't, or publishers, doesn't happen very often. Um, I still like my, most of my time to do sort of volunteer work. But yes, I have. And um I think based on not only my work, but that of many other science detectives, scientific publishers have realized like we, yeah, we have been a little bit too lenient in relying on our peer reviewers. We should, there's many papers that have slipped through the cracks that are probably, uh, you know, either paper mills or that are individual cheaters or that uh, have some peer review ring. And, and so you can now see that papers are being retracted uh, you know, in massive amounts, like hundreds of papers at the same time are retracted mm. from journals nowadays. And yeah, so journals uh, have learned from what we're doing and, and are uh, improving their guidelines based on the work that we do. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I mean, so why, uh, going back to that that pie, um, pie graph that you showed where you had the, the huge blue section where no action is taken, I mean, what are, you mentioned some of the reasons, but why, why is it taking journals so long to act on these? I mean, I can imagine if you submit a list of 100 papers to a journal and say these have all got problems, they've got to find the staff to have to, you know, to, to go yes. and deal with this. But <laughs> anyway, you um, carry on. Yeah, so in particular, PLOS One, I had a, a glimpse behind the scenes. So I did report half of the, the 20,000 papers that are screened, roughly half of them were from PLOS One, just because it was an easy journal to flip through. So not because I had any any uh, you know, suspicions uh, against PLOS One. <coughs> but yeah, I did send them an email saying, here are 350 papers from your journals with problems. And so it was just overwhelming for them. And they had to hire a couple of people to go through this stack. And they're still going, you know, five, seven years later, they're still going through the stack that I sent them back then. Um, so that's one reason. It's just probably overwhelming, just dealing with the backlog that they just had not noticed. Um, but also contacting authors is is much harder than you think. It's... A lot of people move on in academia, so their email addresses of the corresponding author do not work. If the corresponding author doesn't answer, what are the email addresses from the other authors? Usually only one email address is given. If that bounces or if that is not responded to, then a journal doesn't really know what to do. And they should have, they, can, they have the power to retract the paper, even if the author didn't reply. But I think a lot of journals want to do it the right way, want to give the authors a chance to respond and then maybe they also alert the institutions who might or might not respond and then there might be an investigation which can take years if it's an institutional investigation and there's many if you wait for all these steps to happen that can take years hmm. so uh, and then sometimes there's even authors who threaten to sue the editor and i think being threatened to 
to be sued is actually, I mean, I've had a couple of those letters. It's very threatening. And yeah, you, um, you can imagine that an editor is like, well, I guess then I'm not going to retract the paper, but yeah, there have been a couple of cases hmm. where that happened. Okay, well, thank you. So I think we've just got time for a, a one final question, Elizabeth. Um, so, you know, obviously you mentioned the, uh, the editors might receive threatening letters, but what about you? I mean, do you, you know, do you receive any personal pushback or harassment because of the important work that you do? Yes, <laughs> I have. Uh, I get a, a daily stream of uh, nasty messages on Twitter from fans of particular uh, authors whose work I, I've criticized. Um, I've gotten some, not too bad, but yeah, I got some nasty email uh, emails and I got some legal threats. So I got a couple of times, I got a letter where um, authors of a paper said, oh, we want you to remove your blog post or we want you to remove your tweets or else dot 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 and i'm not quite sure what the or else is so in in those cases i decided to not uh to take down one tweet that was you know years old and but i also wrote the back now nah, i'm not gonna remove anything else so um sorry and then you i didn't hear anything back so a lot of these letters are threats um but i have one uh legal complaint filed against me in france uh i haven't heard anything of that i was you know, written up for harassment of a, of a, the author. But yeah, I, to the best of my knowledge, I am not in serious legal trouble in France. I've actually been in France and I was not arrested. So <laughs> I think, I think I'm good. <laughs> but yeah, at some point there will be a legal threat where I'm, you know, I might be sued. There's actually now one that the, the woman at Harvard who has been accused of misconduct is now suing the people who wrote um, reports on Dada Colada about her work and concluded that some of this looked like it might have been fraud. She's suing for defamation and it's a $25 million lawsuit. And so I think if you are a volunteer like me, that is overwhelming. And I'm not quite sure how I would deal with that. <laughs> okay. Well, Elizabeth, uh, thank you so much. That brings us to the end of the of today's webinar. Thanks again for a, um, you know for your insightful presentation and a great discussion. And uh, also thank you to the audience for taking the time to uh, attend today and listen in. So until next time, good luck in your research and, and goodbye <laughs> from all of us at Bite Size Bio. Great. Thank you for having me on. Bye, Anne. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.